Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmanger, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, we are still surviving. I hope everyone is healthy and safe during this lockdown period and this god-awful coronavirus. We are still surviving um, here in Northern Virginia, outside the D.C. metro area. And it's, um, you know, it's we've still continued to watch lots of Netflix and Prime Video. We just finished watching a couple of um, interesting series. We watched Hunters about Nazi hunters, and it kind of mixes a little bit of historical fact and fiction. That's on Prime Video. Al Pacino's in it. Very interesting. Um, it's uh, It was good. We liked it. Had a twist at the end. It was pretty good. And then um, Homeland. I've been watching Homeland since the very beginning. It's one of my favorite shows. Series finale this past week. And, uh, you know, I guess it was a fitting end. This season was up and down for me. A um, couple of seasons have been hit or miss, but overall, great series. Sorry to see it go. Uh, some of those series, you just don't ever want them to end, you know. Homeland was one of those for me. And Empire, another one that um, kind of fell off the last couple of seasons, but they had to have an alternate se- series finale because of uh, the COVID-19 shutdown and production. So what, how we thought it was going to end, it didn't really end that way. It was all right, so... But anyway, that's how we're getting by, how we're surviving here in um, in my household. But coming up on this episode, um, I have Ron Klain. Ron Klain is the former chief of staff for Vice President Biden, and he is a an advisor to him now on the campaign. But pump, some people may know Ron Klain more from his role as the Ebola czar in 2014. So... I decided I think Ron would be a good person to talk about kind of what it's like to actually respond to a health emergency. He has some experience in that. And he's been very outspoken in his criticism against the Trump administration and how they have just terribly mishandled this whole um, coronavirus pandemic. So stay tuned for Ron Klain. He is coming up. It's a good conversation. We talk um, a bit about what the the do's and don'ts and what should have been done and the importance of testing and a little bit about the Biden campaign and how they're handling this as well. So good conversation with Ron Klain coming up. Um, So there's just so much. I mean, I, I know I'm not the only one who's over these White House daily press briefings slash Trump rallies slash propaganda sessions. I'm so over them. And Last week, when Donald Trump basically went on this diatribe about the possibility of uh, injecting you with disinfectant and UV light to kill the coronavirus, I just, you just put your head in your hands and you go, what the F was that? Like, did I just hear this? Is that, did he say what I thought he said? Oh my goodness gracious. And the fallout from it was justified. I mean, days and days of the news cycle. And it should have been because he's insane. These are the kinds of things that are just so insane that it's hard to believe. And it seems that the, that this kind of behavior from Trump, this wacky bullshit that he's spewing for an hour and a half, two hours every briefing, is starting to catch up with him. His poll numbers are slipping and people are starting to tune out. People are getting antsy, right? 
and they want to hear facts. They want to know what what is the plan? Do we have a strategy? When can we reopen the country? How long do we have to stay in lockdown? You know, it's different in different states. Different parts of the country are being impacted by this differently. Like my parents live in New Jersey, right outside New York City. It's still a war zone there. It's awful. New York and New Jersey, at least New York City, isn't opening up anytime soon. They're just not. Here in D.C., it's not quite as bad. If you're up in New England, not not Boston, Boston's getting hit, but like Maine or up there, not as bad. But you're in Atlanta and you have this dumbass governor down there who decided to reopen everything way too early. Not a good idea. There's no national plan. And that's been very frustrating, I think, for the American people. And it's it's difficult because it's a lot of people feel like, well, it doesn't affect us here. So why do we have to be cooped up? You know, we saw this crazy protests and people, these anti-vaxxers and, and gun rights people and everybody's coming together now to go to the, to march on state capitol saying reopen and we're not going to take any vaccines. Jesus is my vaccine. And I mean, it, it really is a shit show out there. And mainly because of the lack of leadership, cohesive leadership, competent leadership coming from the White House. And the country is in complete disarray. People are losing their lives. Our healthcare workers are overwhelmed. It's um, our food supply now is, is becoming interrupted. But Trump has decided that, oh, no, meat packers, you guys are essential. You have to go to work. Meanwhile, there have been many meatpacking, meat processing plants in the Midwest that have had to shut down because so many workers have contracted coronavirus. And 25% reduction in, in production right now. And Trump was like, oh, no, 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 we can't have a, a disruption in the supply chain. So what do you do? You, it, you're weighing economics versus people's lives. And this is a tough, tough decision. But you have all these mixed messages coming out of the White House. People just don't know what to do. And a couple of the things that, you know, after the disinfectant stuff, obviously White House advisors are trying to convince Trump to stop doing these briefings every day. But he can't help himself. We already know this. And it's a moot point at this point with them. You know, he had he canceled one, I think, over the weekend. He didn't they didn't have any briefings over the weekend. But by Monday, forget it. He was bursting at the seams. They had to have another another briefing and it, you know, it went off the rails as usual, attacks the media. And over the weekend, he went on tweets that rage tweeted all kinds of crazy conspiracy theorists and all kinds of stuff talking about ratings and sleepy Joe. I mean, you know, we're starting to become numb to this because it happens so often, but we can't become numb, numb to this because as I always say, none of this is normal. None of it. And we cannot allow it to be. Um, we got a new press secretary. I saw, you know, so I saw that, that Kaylee McEnany. Let me tell you something just quickly about this Kaylee. I, unfortunately, I had the misfortune of having to sit next to this girl many, many nights on CNN during the 2016 election. We were both CNN contributors. She was one of the few people who could put a sentence together that was pro-Trump at the time. And I'd never heard of her. She came out of nowhere. And she was one of the most insufferable people I have ever had to deal with in my entire career working in cable news media as a commentator. There are a lot of people that I 
have disagreements with on policy, who we go out and have drinks after and we're still we can still be friends and argue like hell over policy. But there were very few people I could count on half a hand the people who I despise that I just don't have anything to actually say to them. Like nothing. I ignore them. They do not exist to me except when we're on air and I have to. She is at the top of that list. Boris Epstein is another one. Another Trumper jerk off who I got into a screaming match with who my husband, I had to hold my husband back from actually during a um, 2016 appearance with him because he was so disrespectful. But that's another story. (laughs) Um, If you don't know who Boris Epstein is, Google him. He's a piece of work, that one. You know, Trump seems to bring out the best, right? Only the best. These people are the worst. They crawl out from these rocks. They're grifters. They're attention whores. And, you know, when, when when you have a clown, you bring the circus to town with them. And that's exactly what we've got. This Kayleigh McEnany lies as easily as she breathes. And this is now who the taxpayers are paying to be our press secretary. And you're, she is, you can't believe a word she says. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say about her. But now I can, I can speak freely because we are no longer colleagues. So I will have plenty to say when she is uh, in the news. So you can count on that. But she's absolutely insufferable and a liar and an opportunist. I guess it's paid off for her. Depends on how you look at it. You know, calls herself a Christian too, please. I don't even want to go there. But yeah, that's that with her. I had to say, I had to get that out. Um, <laughs> what else is going on? Um, oh, so the vice president of the United States decided to take a trip to the Mayo Clinic out there in Minnesota, world famous. And, you know, to show support for the researchers and the scientists out there, everyone that's working hard on tests and, and um, vaccines and things and treatments. And this idiot doesn't wear a mask. Everyone else has a mask on in this lab because it's the, it's the protocol, right? It's mandatory, except for Mike Pence. Really, Mike Pence, why? Why? And his explanation for this and the Mayo Clinic, I mean, obviously there, were, there was footage of this. And so people were like, why does, is the vice president the only one without a mask? I mean, isn't that like CDC rules now? You have some cities and states that are requiring you have to wear some kind of, some kind of mask out in public. And here he is in a lab where they're doing coronavirus testing without a mask. And his answer to this was, well, I'm tested for coronavirus every week. So I just wanted to show my support for the hardworking men and women in healthcare. What the, what, what does that have to do with you violating, first of all, the Mayo Clinic's rules? And then, um, I don't know, is it Mayo or Mayo? I'm not sure, but whatever. Um, what, what makes you think that that explanation works here? You're violating the rules you look like an asshole because here you are trying to tell the American people they need to wear masks to, to, to minimize exposure. Here you are in ground zero where you could possibly get it, where there's in a lab where they have it and you're not wearing a mask. I just can't with these people. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. But, you know, not atypical. What else happened this week? So um, <laughs> we find out that the president of the United States was warned 
warned early on this we've known right more and more stories have been coming out about how the president knew as early as january early january about the threat this could potentially pose he keeps going out there during these briefings and saying things like oh who knew i didn't know and or then he turns around and says well no i didn't know i called it a pandemic before anybody else did all of that is a bunch of bullshit okay Yes, he was warned early on. And I guess people inside the, the intelligence community and national security space are just getting sick and tired of him uh, perpetuating this lie, propagating this lie about how, you know, we took early and decisive action and we should be happy that there's only 60,000 people going to die instead of a million or whatever he keeps saying, which is a very sick and twisted way to look at this. But I guess people are tired of that because it's just not accurate. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen TikToks from both the Washington Post and New York Times, excellent reporting about how the president basically squandered the entire month of February and half the month of March because he was in denial. He didn't want to hear it. He was dismissive, not you know, distrusting of the intel reports, whatever the reason. But he didn't take it seriously. It's documented. We've seen the tweets. We've seen the rallies. We've heard his own words where he called it a flu. It's, it was a hoax, Democratic hoax. You had his minions on Fox and other places saying, oh, this is, this is just another impeachment attempt to get rid of Trump. You know, like as if this weren't real, it wasn't life-threatening. Trish Regan over at Fox Business lost her show, lost her job for putting out that bullshit as she should have because it was irresponsible. Rush Limbaugh is another one, Hannity, all of those hacks over there at Fox. They, and, and well, Rush is not at Fox, but, um, but all the right wing hacks that tried to dismiss this as if it weren't serious. Just think of how many lives that, that has cost because people listened to them and didn't listen to the scientists or the experts. It's so frustrating. Speaking of getting fired, by the way, Diamond and Silk. I call them, or my mom actually coined the term for them, step and fetch it. <laughs> um, or cubic zirconium polyester. I can't stand those two minstrel fools. They are a disgrace. They're ignorant and embarrassment, stereotypical minstrel. I just, I can't with them. And the fact they get any attention whatsoever, that they have, they're in the Oval Office with the President of the United States, that they had a show on Fox Nation, like, it is deplorable. They are, they are deplorable. And they got fired from Fox News because they were part of that cabal putting out all the misinformation about the coronavirus, like conspiracy level, conspiracy theory level misinformation. I guess finally somebody said enough. Mm-hmm. So good riddance. Good riddance. Oh, embarrassment. Minstrels. Anyway. So Trump, right, he poo-pooed this for months, for, well, for weeks at least, month and a half, almost two. Well, the Washington Post came out with a story on the, on the 27th, President's Intelligence Briefing Book Repeatedly Cited Virus Threat. And this is in the Washington Post. And basically, this story documents how the president received his presidential daily briefing, that is a briefing book that the president receives every day, prepared by our intelligence folks, that outlines all of the gravest threats facing the country. It's called the presidential PDB, for short. You know, Barack Obama used to read it um, thoroughly. He liked reading briefing books from reports. 
George W. Bush would read like the executive summaries, but then he would have extensive meetings with his national security advisors and things and talk through the information in the briefing book. This is pretty important. It's the most top secret briefing that the president of the United States receives. Trump, it's been reported over the years, can't be bothered. He doesn't read the presidential daily briefings. Well, we already know this because he doesn't read shit anyway. So he, and he doesn't read this. He gets annoyed. It's been reported when people try to give him like a quick summary, two and three minutes explaining like, excuse me, Mr. President, you kind of have to focus on this. It's important. He gets annoyed. Yeah, I can't be bothered. You know, God forbid he's got to watch Fox and Friends in the morning. You know. <laughs> so we have this PDB and this story says, look, warnings about the, the coronavirus were mentioned over a dozen times in the presidential daily briefing since January. And early January, by the way. So Trump can't sit here and say, well, maybe he could because he doesn't read them. But other high level staffers and, and cabinet members, they do have access to the briefing in, in a um, edited format. So people knew and they were trying to sound the alarm. But Trump didn't want to hear it. And we know some of the wacky stuff he said, right? Oh, it's going to go away. A miracle's going to happen. You know, when, when, uh, in, in, it took him until mid-March to declare a national emergency. But this story talks about how, uh, talks about how many people within the, the White House were trying to let him know, including the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, who is reportedly on the chopping block, but the White House denies that. But he was trying to tell him early on, didn't want to hear it. And, you know, in the story, it says for weeks, the PDB, as the report is known, traced the virus's spread around the globe, made clear that China was suppressing information about the contagion's transmissibility and lethal toll and raised the prospect of dire political and economic consequences. Yeah, but Trump didn't want to hear it. Nope, 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 nope. Something else he didn't want to hear when professionals like Dr. Nancy Messonnier, she is an award-winning director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Disease at the CDC. Pretty accomplished, I'd say, right? She knows what she's talking about. She's an expert. She made a comment at the end of February where she said, listen, we need to be prepared that our lives are going to be disrupted. This is serious. Well, that's when Trump was in India and he freaked out when he heard this and basically silenced her. Rush Limbaugh went on the air and claimed that she was part of a deep state conspiracy to silence Donald Trump because she was being honest about what was coming with this virus. Why were they so suspicious of her? Because she is Rod Rosenstein's sister. Yes, that Rod Rosenstein, the guy who oversaw the Mueller report, the Mueller investigation, the number two at the Department of Justice, that Rod Rosenstein. Okay, so what if she's his sister? This was not some deep state conspiracy to take down the president, but that's how they took it. And that's how, that's the lens through which Trump views everything. He's so paranoid that he put the country at risk because of his own ego and paranoia and insecurity. That's why you don't see her anymore. She used to show up in the very beginning when they first were doing these briefings, gone like that. It's crazy. It's a good story. You should read it. Um, alarming, nonetheless. But uh, he was warned. Now, a friend of mine who uh, 
worked in the National Security Council in, in on the National Security Council and not there anymore, but told me something interesting, which I don't think has been reported anywhere else yet. But in that article, it talks about how, you know, the intelligence community, they didn't really say anything about what the domestic possibilities would be. They had no projections there. And he told me, well, that's because it's not their job to put it into a domestic lens. They look at foreign threats. But the person who is the Homeland Security Advisor, it's like the National Security Advisor handles national security threats. The Homeland Security Advisor in the White House is supposed to be that intermediary between Homeland Security, domestic threats and things, and the intel community. Well, that person in mid-February, when the alarms were really going off about coronavirus, that person was on their way out. He was on his way out. His name is Peter Brown. And... So there was no one in that capacity. And that person, they're the ones who distills the, they they distill the information in the PDB and extrapolate the domestic policy part. And they go to their counterparts on the foreign uh, intelligence side and say, okay, how does this impact us? How does this impact us domestically? That person was no longer there because they basically eliminated that position in the White House because they were worried about a possible shadow NSC happening on the national homeland security side. This is insanity, people. You cannot run a preparedness, domestic policy preparedness, national security threat apparatus without these people talking to each other. You have to have people in these positions. But that was something that wasn't um, included in that Washington Post story that I hope somebody picks up because it's an important point. You didn't have someone. Tom Bossert, you may have heard that name. He quit basically as the Homeland Security Advisor in the summer of 2018 when John Bolton came in because Bolton felt like, ah, we don't really need that position. We're going to dilute it and basically force Tom Bossert out. Bossert's been very critical of the president's, uh, the Trump administration's response Sure, because he looks at it from a homeland security side. But the Department of Homeland Security has been so decimated. We don't even have a permanent homeland security secretary. People probably forgot that. It's been over a year. He's been an acting secretary. And there's probably, I think, almost over a dozen major posts in the Department of Homeland Security that are either vacant or in acting. You can't run a government like that, especially in something so important. Is this the kind of leadership we want? These are the kinds of things that I hope the Biden campaign picks up and explains to people like we're running a half-assed ship here because Trump is incompetent. Elect me and things will run again the way they're supposed to. But stay on the lookout for that story. You know, I think that's an important one. There's something else. um, Friend of the program, Ryan Goodman, he was on a couple episodes ago. Ryan is a um, professor at NYU law school. And he wrote an op-ed about uh, how Trump and his team covered up the coronavirus during the last five days of February. So remember, I was telling you about the the presidential daily briefing and how Trump poo-pooed this and dismissed it. And, you know, nobody was around to really distill it and be that intermediary um, because that person, they eliminated the position. That was in mid-February. What also happened in mid-February was our acting DNI, Director of National Intelligence, was also fired. Remember that? I mean, that feels like ages ago. That was quite the scandal because 
Admiral McGuire was a well-respected guy, had been in intelligence for years, and he was fired because one of his advisors gave a congressional briefing about Russian interference in the 2020, upcoming 2020 election and their preference for Trump. Trump found out, freaked out, fired the DNI. And then he put in one of his cronies, Richard, Richard Grinnell, who was also the, I think, the ambassador to Germany and is still doing both jobs. What a disaster that is. So all this chaos going on in February, precious time is being wasted. Precious time in the corona response, coronavirus response. Precious time. Every week, every day matters when you have a contagion like this spreading by, you know, multitudes of four and five. They don't, they're not really sure. They're still not really sure how, it, how transmissible it is. Trump is jerking off with doing this and that about this and that and not focusing on what's best for the American people and how to keep us safe. Well, Ryan Goodman makes a point here in his op-ed where he points out that that last week in February, which was a crucial week in timing, where the people who knew, they knew, but they were still manipulating the American people and playing down the severity of the pandemic. Who were some of those people? Alex Azar. Health and Human Services Secretary, Larry Kudlow, who's the president's National Economic Council director, he went out there and said that, oh, no, we've got it contained. You know, I'm not going to say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. He said that to CNBC. Secretary Azar, he said, we're trying to engage in radical transparency with the American public as we go through this. But within 20 seconds of that statement, he said, thanks to the president and this team's aggressive containment efforts, coronavirus is contained. This was in February, February 25th, 26th, contained? Come on. Remember Kellyanne Conway? She said the same thing, got into an argument with being a snitty, snooty bitch, got into an argument with a reporter when she said it's contained and was like, well, are you a doctor? Do you, well, do you know? I mean, uh uh-huh. They already knew that this was going to be a problem because Dr. Nancy Messonnier, remember Rod Rosenstein's sister, she was already out there being like, listen, this is going to be a problem. She said, quote, we want to make sure the American public is prepared. We as a family ought to be preparing for significant disruption to our lives. That's what she said on February 26th. And Trump freaked out. The military also knew that this was going to be a problem, the National Center for Medical Intelligence raised the warning level inside the government to WatchCon 1, concluding that coronavirus was imminently likely to develop into a full-blown pandemic last week in February. This is from this uh, this op-ed by Ryan Goodman, how Trump and his team covered up the coronavirus in five days. This is on April 28th in the New York Times. No, Mark, Defense Secretary Mark Esper, same thing towed the line, even though he knew it was a problem. In a video conference with American commanders around the world, he instructed them to give notice on any decisions made about how to protect their personnel from the virus if doing so might, quote, run afoul of President Trump's messaging. And that was according to a New York Times report. Esper's office denied that that's what he said exactly, but he testified in front of Congress not long after that and confirmed many details of that original story and just said that that it was, he just asked for a heads up on such decisions to make sure that the administration was integrated and the response was integrated across agencies. Yeah, nice way to cover it up. 
this was also around the time where that uh, Navy captain was sounding the alarm about what was going on in his Navy ship and no one was listening. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt. Unfortunately, Dr. Fauci was kind of involved in this too, playing it down during that week. And, you know, I think he was just trying to go along with keeping the peace so that he wouldn't get fired, so that he could be involved in the actual response. But even Fauci said on February 26th, no, right now at this moment, there's no need to change anything that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Right now, the risk is still low. Adding though that that could change. I think he probably regrets saying that, um, but you know, I still like Dr. Fauci. Not compared to that Burks though, I don't like her. She's completely gone over to the political side and lost a lot of credibility, almost all of it in my opinion with the way she's tried to cover for Trump. Not acceptable. But those were five days where, where, you know, they were gaslighting the American people into a certain sense of, oh, it's going to be fine, no big deal. Meanwhile, they knew that this was, that this was going to come into be, becoming a global pandemic. And just think of, I don't know, how many, how many lives this could have cost. I mean, we're looking at, we've surpassed a million positive coronavirus tests now. I mean, uh, cases a million, over 56,000. We're going to hit 60,000 soon, faster than they anticipated of deaths. This is tragic. It's awful. And this administration has done nothing but try to cover their asses. And we still don't have enough testing in place to open the country back up safely. We don't. No matter how many times the president repeats the lie that we do and that we're testing more than everybody else. Yeah, we're testing more in raw numbers because we have more citizens, but not per capita. Italy is testing almost twice as many than as we are. And we've only ramped it up in the last week. A week and a half ago, we were still behind South Korea per capita with testing. Why did we have such a failure in testing? Well, the CDC screwed that up early on. They had faulty tests in the beginning. There was a bureaucratic nightmare where they wouldn't allow state laboratories or private labs to do it. Everything had to go through the CDC because they were trying to control the numbers. That caused a terrible backlog, put the country behind the eight ball, and they haven't been able to catch up. And only recently now, since they opened things up and they've even, uh, the FDA approved um, an at-home sample test for healthcare workers. So you can take the sample at home and then you still have to send it out to a lab. But we, how do they expect to open the country unless you have full-blown testing? Um, I do a lot of reading. And if you are interested in a good nonpartisan site, uh, statnews, statnews.com, great site for more technical medical information about what's going on with um, various aspects of this. They have great reporters. They just wrote a a story a couple days ago that said 31 states in the District of Columbia were doing too little testing last week to identify most infected people in a timely manner. 10 states would need to increase their daily testing totals by at least 10,000 to open back up by May 1st. New York, for instance, would have to perform more than 100,000 more tests a day. 100,000 more tests a day is what they would need. And New Jersey, 68,000 more tests a day to have enough testing to open up by May 1st. That's this week. They're not doing that. The governors have been begging, begging for help in this area. 
and they've had to compete against each other. Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, Republican, by the way, had to go to South Korea to secure 500,000 tests. That's insane. This is where the federal government is supposed to come in with a coordinated response, and they're not. According to this stat news report, only 19 states, all but two in the South or the Western half of the country are already doing enough testing. (laughs) You gotta be kidding me. So without this increased testing capacity, it's insane to open things up. And I know that it's hard and people are suffering, but you cannot get your life back. And the emphasis on, on why the U.S. has screwed up testing and what's going on, I mean, it's, this is going to be some, a subject of much investigation when this is all over with. But right now, that has got to be the focus. And as you're evaluating when it makes sense, when you're listening to certain people, if they're not emphasizing testing and tracing, then they're not being honest about what it's going to take to balance the economy and people's health in order to open open states back up again. And I think that that's um, a good area to bring in Ron Klain because he knows a little bit about how to handle these kinds of things. And um, since he works with the Biden campaign as well as an advisor, uh, let's hear what former Vice President Biden, Chief of Staff, and Ebola czar Ron Klain has to say next up in Honestly Speaking Time. Well, I'm absolutely pleased to bring someone on who knows a thing or two about responses to health crises. Um, He's the former Ebola response coordinator, also known as the Ebola czar under the Obama administration, former chief of staff to Vice President Biden, and currently the co-host of the Epidemic podcast, which can be found everywhere. Um, Welcome, Ron Klain. Thank you for joining me on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Tara, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. You know, I always feel it's important for my podcast to bring people on to inform my listeners because my mantra has, is, and I say this before every podcast, is telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. We have got to, in this era that we live in, of just complete bullshit and propaganda to inform people with what's really going on. So bringing someone like you with the level of expertise that you have, not only with this response, but just your decades of experience in politics. I just think it's so important. So I'm really, really glad that you're able to take the time out and and join me and talk about this because, um, you know, now more than ever, we've got to cut through the BS and and hit people with the truth. Um, I appreciate it, Tara. I I will say decades, decades makes me feel very, very old. I suppose (laughs) if we're going to tell the truth. I probably am. So there you go. That's fair. That's fair. You know, but that makes me old too, because I've been in politics for a couple, a couple of decades and I'm in denial right. about All how right. old I am. So, but in this All context, right. you know, having a little bit of age equals wisdom and expertise, which is desperately needed in, in this day and age. So it's not so bad. It's like I a fine wine, that. right? I age is like fine All wine. Right. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. So as
as we look at what's happening and as someone who handled the Ebola response under the Obama administration, we are now at a point where the American people are starting to get a little antsy and they're like, all right, enough with this now, the social distancing and locking everything down. You know, what's wrong with what George is doing? George has got it right, right? Let's open stuff back up. People have got to work. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is a lot of people are going to get sick and some people are going to die. And that's obviously tragedy for our health outcomes. It's also going to be bad for the economy. I mean, if you really care about creating jobs, if you really care about getting businesses open, then having businesses open and have people get sick when they go there, that's not really going to be great for the economy. No one's going to go back to a barber shop where they get a fatal disease. No one's going to go back to a beauty shop where they get a fatal disease. And so we've been through this uh, in this country before. It was a long time ago, of course, 100 years ago with the Spanish flu epidemic from 1918, 1919. What we saw there was the places that reopened the fastest were the places that were hit the hardest and uh, and where people in a second wave of the disease actually died in larger numbers than in the first wave of the disease. So I get why people want to go back to work. I want to go back to work. Uh, but what I will say is that a little more patience, a little more following the science, following what the experts recommend is going to not only save lives, which is super important, of course, but actually in the long run, give us the best chance to restart the economy in a strong way and in a sustainable way. You know, but people say, you know, the, the Trump supporters and the Trump administration that, yes, but if it, it doesn't matter, you know, we're, we're some places aren't going to be hit as much. You know, this is a New York problem. It's L.A. It's it's what about the middle middle America? You know, our farmers, everyone's getting hit so hard. So, you know, what's what's the harm in in letting things open slowly but surely in, in stages? That makes sense, right? Well, there's. Slowly but surely and in stages is, in fact, the way to do it. Of course, you mentioned Georgia, Tara. They didn't open slowly and surely or in stages. They opened everything today, Monday, April 27th. We're having this conversation, including barber shops and beauty shops, tattoo parlors, massage therapists, movie theaters, right? And so, you know, the White House plan for reopening, which I thought was overly aggressive, was not even that aggressive. It said in stage one, you open things that can be done more safely, where people can be kept farther apart. Then maybe later on, you open other things as you start to make more progress. So the most important thing, though, is that this isn't something that can be decided arbitrarily. You need to follow the disease. Uh, As Dr. Fauci said a few weeks ago, the virus decides. In parts of the country where the virus is not as bad, in parts of the country where uh, there haven't been significant outbreaks, then, um, you know, opening more things more quickly makes sense, of course. But George is a really good example. It's it's not just Atlanta where there have been some very bad outbreaks. They're in rural parts of Georgia. In southwestern Georgia, is one of the top hotspots in the entire country. You talk about rural areas. We're seeing incredible numbers of cases mm-hmm. in places in you know in in rural places, in places where people are working, uh, you know, in the agricultural system, places where uh, you know meat slaughterhouses and beef processing plants and pork processing plants, and so on and so forth. So obviously, this disease is worse in big cities where people 
people are closer together. It's largely spread person to person. The more people are together, the more disease is going to be spread. But even in rural areas where people work closely together, uh, where the conditions aren't quite as good, uh, the disease can spread there too. And um, and so I don't think any part of the country is immune to this. We have cases in all 50 states. We have fatalities in all 50 states. Look, we are nearing the end of the month of April. It will be one of the deadliest months in American history. More Americans will die this month from COVID than died in over a decade in Vietnam. More Americans will die this month from COVID than died in 9-11 and the wars that followed 9-11. So this is not not just a flu. It's not just a small thing. This is something that is killing tens of thousands of our countrymen and women, and we need to handle it uh, the right way. So handling it the right way, does that mean more testing? Does that mean uh, antibody testing? What are some of the things that you believe we need to be doing better in order to start the reopening process that's not being done now? Yeah, so, so I think there's there's three preconditions to reopening, right? The first is you just have to have the number of cases down, okay? Um, uh, and that's, that, you know, you just, we need to stop and think about that for a second. Um, if there are a thousand new cases a day in the city, then if you're out walking around, the odds that you're going to run into one of those people is very, very high. If there's a hundred new cases in the city, the odds go down a lot, right? And so getting the one way to stop spreading it is to keep people in place until just the number of cases comes down. So your odds of running into someone with a case goes down, transmission slows. That's the first step. The White House plan said it had to go down 14 days in a row before a place could reopen. Again, Georgia's reopening without 14 days of decrease. Uh, Other states are looking at opening without 14 days of increase. So 14 days of increase aren't enough, in my opinion. I think that needs to really be down to a very low level. But even that standard isn't being cleared by some of these reopenings. So that's the first step. The second thing you have to do is you have to have widespread testing. Why do you have widespread testing? Because you have to know who has it and who doesn't so we can separate the people who have it. And you have to know then with testing comes tracing. This is the basic epidemic tool that people have been using to beat epidemics for more than 100 years. You figure out who has it. You figure out who they've been in touch with. You isolate those people. You, you, you isolate these chains of transmission, and eventually you snuff the epidemic out. That's how we beat Ebola in West Africa. That's how we've beaten other epidemics around the world. That's what you have to do. That's the second, that's the second key thing. And the third key thing is you have to make sure that in an area where you're going to reopen, the healthcare system has healthy doctors and nurses, has enough equipment, has enough supplies. So if you do get a flare-up, you're able to do that without shutting down the healthcare system again. And I think those three things need to be in place. The, the challenge here is this. We've now been at this for several months, and we haven't fixed those problems. We haven't fixed the testing problem. We haven't fixed the, the medical equipment problem. We haven't fixed the healthcare system problem. And so people say, why haven't we opened yet? My question is, why hasn't President Trump done the job of fixing these things? And if he wants us to go back to work, I want to go back to work. We all want to go back to work. For everyone to do their jobs, he has to do his. And that's the part of this that's still missing. Let's talk about uh, President Trump's response a little bit. You've been warning for years, actually, that 
Trump was not equipped to handle a pandemic or, or an epidemic crisis like this since bef- right before he got sworn in. You were like, he's not equipped because you were part of the team that put together the pandemic preparedness plan um, in the Obama administration that was handed off to the Trump administration. Um, and it's it, don't you hate to be right about stuff like that? Like, I, I was warning that if Trump got elected, that, you know, that would be bad for America. And I'd never wanted to be more wrong. I bet you've probably never wanted to be more wrong. Well, look, I think uh, I appreciate that. And uh, I, I hoped I was wrong. But there were a lot of signs um, that this was going to happen. I mean, President likes to say no one saw it coming. But in <laughs> fact, not just me, a lot of people saw it coming. Right, Bill Gates exactly. gave a very famous speech where he said this is the single thing most likely to kill tens of millions of people around the world. And I wrote this big piece in 2016, laying this all out. And so the, the fact of the matter is that a lot of people saw it coming. And a lot of warnings were given to President Trump and his team on the way in. And I would say under the best of circumstances, no one could really be ready for something this bad. But President Trump did a lot of things to get us unready, if you will. He shut down the White House Office of Pandemic Preparedness, which we created under President Obama. He shut down the, or substantially shut down, shut down three quarters of the program called PREDICT, which President Obama launched, which was designed to find emerging infectious disease threats around the world and give us early warnings. He shut down one of those units in China. He failed to fill the position that President Obama negotiated for to have an American expert inside the Chinese Disease Control Agency. Trump didn't use that power, didn't put someone in that situation. So we were not as prepared uh, in 2019 as it should have been, not as prepared in 2019 as we were in 2016. We went backwards over the past three years. And then when this happened, I think when we started to get the signs in December and January that this was coming, you know, once again, President Trump didn't take the steps he could have taken to put us in a better situation. He didn't ramp up testing. He didn't ramp up the medical equipment and gear that we needed. And you don't have to take my word for that. You can just compare our country to other countries. I mean, we had our first case on the same day that Korea had its first case, January 20th. Both countries got the first case on the same day. America, Korea, both, you know, I mean, no one, neither country has special technology or some special wisdom or whatever. No reason why this disease should be different in the United States than it is in Korea. And yet in Korea, there have been hundreds of deaths. In America, tens of thousands of deaths. And that's because Korea quickly ramped up testing. They put in social mitigation measures. They did the things you needed to do to fight it. President Trump spent January and February saying it wasn't a big deal, saying we had 15 cases, we were on our way to zero, saying it would magically go away when April came and it got a little warmer outside. Hey, it'll be a miracle, a miracle. <laughs> it'll be a miracle. You know, all these things, right, that, that had the effect of uh, not getting this country ready for what was coming. And uh, and again, we should have seen it coming before this outbreak in China in December, but certainly once that happened, we should have seen it coming. And certainly when the World Health Organization in January declared this a public health emergency of international concern, we should have really ramped up our preparation. We just didn't. And that is on President Trump. 
What do you say to the critics who um, go after the Obama administration for, well, you, you know, you guys left us with a shortage of medical supplies and N95 masks. It was depleted after 2009 and the H1N1 uh, uh, epidemic then. Why wasn't the national stockpile replenished? What, what, what's your response to the people who criticized the Obama administration for leaving this, quote, lack of medical supplies and N95 masks as the Trump administration came in? Well, a couple of things. If I mean, that's look, even true, by the way. Yeah, look, I think it's a fair conversation to have. First of all, clearly the biggest gap here was testing, and you can't build a test till you have a virus. And so the question is, why didn't the Trump administration handle the testing thing? Why didn't they accept the World Health Organization test protocol, which most other countries did? That's why they were so far ahead of us on testing. Why didn't they get the equipment made to test? That's something you can't blame on Obama at all, because there were no tests before there was this disease. Right. As for the national strategic stockpile, uh, it didn't have as much stuff in it as it should have. President Obama went to Congress repeatedly uh, in the in his second term, and a Republican majority in Congress refused to fund it. Now, that wasn't just our experience. Secretary Alex Azar, President Trump's Secretary of Health and Human Services, when he came in in 2017, said, hey, we need more things in the stockpile. And he went to Trump's White House and Trump's White House and we're not going to spend money on that. Wouldn't even make the request to Congress to get things into the stockpile. So the stockpile did not have as much in it as it should have. Nonetheless, it had a lot of supplies that the president was too slow to get out, too slow to distribute. And most importantly, the president had the power under the Defense Production Act Mm -hmm. or the manufacture of new equipment, new goods. He's basically refused to use that power. That was the key tool that President Trump has had to try to turn around the supply chain problems here. And uh, he didn't do it. And we're paying the price for that. You know, it's it's amazing as we sit back and watch this. And and for me, I mean, as I'm I'm not a specialist in in pandemic responses, but uh, for someone like you from your perch, as you were watching this unfold, particularly during the daily press briefings that were supposed to be informative, supposed to be something that the American people could turn to to get information because people are scared. They don't know what's going on. The economy is tanking. You have 20 plus million people who are unemployed. Now, these have turned into de facto rallies for for Donald Trump, and the experts are being sidelined or co-opted. Did you work with Dr. Fauci or Dr. Burks when you were uh, the Ebola czar in 2014 or in any capacity? Yeah, so I worked very closely with Dr. Fauci almost every single day during the Ebola response. Dr. Burks was not directly involved in it, but I got to know her through – kind of the circles you travel in, which you get to work on an epidemic response. Uh, and she was busy uh, working on uh, different different problems in Africa during the Ebola response. So she and I didn't work together directly, but I know her uh, not nearly as well as Tony Fauci, uh, as well as other experts who were involved in this. Dr. Ann Shukat, who's the deputy director at CDC, was a key aspect of our Ebola response effort. Um, and so, look, what I'd say is this. 
we have the very best medical experts in the U.S. government, the best experts in the world, period, stop, end of story. They have served Democratic presidents. They have served Republican presidents. Dr. Fauci first came to government working for Ronald Reagan. Okay, He played a critical role in our fight against HIV AIDS. As a result, a Republican president, George W. Bush, gave him our nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Mm-hmm. He has been trusted by Ronald Reagan, by George Bush, by Bill Clinton, by George Bush, by Barack Obama. Okay, There is nothing political. There's not a political bone in Tony Fauci's body. What there is is one of the nation's leading medical experts, one of the world's leading medical experts that presidents in both parties have trusted. The idea that Donald Trump would not take his advice, the idea that Donald Trump is sidelining him and speaking publicly, all this is insanity. It is insanity, okay? And, um, and again, something none of his predecessors being back 30 years would have possibly contemplated. That shows you how bad it is. Do, um, do, do you, have you, when you, what do you think about uh, Dr. Burks? And I mean, I've found her to be very, very frustrating to watch and listen to because you can tell that she clearly, uh, you know, she's smart and she is experienced and understands the severity of this. But I feel like between the two of them, she's gotten to be a bit more political in her responses and and her cover for Trump. And after he made those ludicrous, fucking insane comments about disinfectants and UV lights and all of that, and we saw the video of her sitting there on the side, horrified by him and just sitting there in silence, you could just see her soul leaving her body at that point. You know, what do... uh, I don't understand how these people can just sit there and not come out and be more forthright and honest with the American people and just say, I mean, I know it's at risk of their jobs, but just say, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but that is completely unscientific and we should not be saying things like that. It's dangerous. It could cost lives. Like, do you just sit there sometimes and just go, why don't you speak up? She's so frustrating to me. Fauci, I love. I have a shirt that says Fauci 2020 that I bought, I saw, that I wear because I support Dr. Fauci and he's been less political. But I just feel like she's crossed over to the dark side a bit at the expense of her reputation, at the expense of her reputation. I do think that uh, Dr. Burks has played this a little less straight than Dr. Fauci has and has defended some things that President Trump said in a way that Dr. Fauci just wouldn't. Right. Um, not, not only just this thing about the bleach and the whole thing, but before, honestly, I mean, again, shows, shows you the risk of being political. She stood there the day before Trump said that Georgia was wrong. She stood up and said, well, I suppose if you can cut hair from six feet away, it's fine. And, you know, he's trying to protect Georgia, not, I think, yeah. So, so, so look, let's go back to that. So, yeah. look, I, I, do, I, do think, I do think Dr. Burks has moved a little more on the political side. I have some sympathy for her. She works at the White House. I know she's under a lot of pressure there. It's hard to navigate. But in the end, right, the person who's responsible for this is Donald Trump. It's not it's not Dr. Burks, it's not Wilson, it's Donald Trump. Uh, he, he's the president. He could do what his predecessors, Democrats and Republicans, have done. Take medical advice. Take responsibility in the time of crisis. Lead our country with science and honesty. Uh, the fact that he's not, that's his choice. And yes, it does have the effect of, of bringing other people into that swirl, and everyone has to sort out how they handle that. And I think Dr. Burks just handled it better some days, worse other days. But, I mean, you know, 
we shouldn't let the president escape responsibility here. He's a responsible person. He owns this. And while you and I can sit here and go through each of these appointees and and grade their performances, in the end, um, if, if to the extent we have a mess, we have a mess because of Donald Trump. That's the bottom line, Mister. I don't take responsibility for anything when the 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 buck stops with him, and that's part of the problem with his lack of leadership and how ill-equipped he is to handle something like this, which people like you and others warned about, and yet so many people continue to enable him and make excuses for him, and we we just can't we can't allow that any longer. And thank God we have an election on November third where we can the American people can make the decision that this is not the type of leadership they want, and they have a great alternative in Joe Biden, um, who you have known and worked for for over almost 30 years, right? I have, yes. I first went to work for him back in 1986. So that's that's 34 years, I guess. Yes. And uh, now, I'm, now, now, now I'm even older. There you go. <laughs> decades see, and decades. You did it, not decades me. Decades <laughs> and decades and decades. So you you've known Joe Biden since he had hair, uh, more hair than he has uh, now. You know what? In all honesty, he did not even have that much hair back then. That's the that is the truth. That is the truth. Um, you know the the Biden campaign is is in a tough spot because. Trump with these daily briefings and, uh, you know, gets all of this free publicity and it's an ongoing battle, you know, with the network I work for, CNN and others. How much do they cover, you know, because it's turned really into campaign rallies, as I mentioned before, not as informative as it used to be. And now you have poor Joe Biden that's stuck in his basement in Delaware doing Skype videos um, relegated to that because we can't travel and do the what he's best at, which is retail politics. Um, You know, I know the Biden campaign put put out a plan for what he believes we should be doing, um, what 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 we should be doing before the the country reopens. Uh, If you can talk a little bit about that plan and also just so some of the challenges that the campaign is facing with the attention Trump is getting versus trying to get their message out because this is a behemoth that they're up against with this Trump campaign and their digital footprint and dealing with the free media they get. What are some of the what, what's what's Biden's um, plan versus what Trump is doing? And what are some of the challenges the campaign's facing? Well, let me do the political part of this. I'll go to the substantive part of it. On the political side, what I'd say, Tara, is that, um, you know, uh, honestly, the more Trump talks, the worse off he is. And so most of the recent Biden ads have literally just been clips of Donald Trump talking. I said to someone the other day that the chief digital strategist for the Biden campaign is Donald Trump yeah. because he wakes up every day. He makes our ads all by himself. And so um, so 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 while obviously he has a big megaphone and if he used that megaphone in a responsible way, if he used that megaphone to say things that reassured people, if he used that megaphone to show compassion and empathy for the people who are suffering, if he used that megaphone to lay out a concrete strategy and execute it, then it would be a, a substantial political advantage. No question about it. But he stands up every day and uses that megaphone to spread hatred and division, to attack reporters. To, to, to express self-pity that his approval ratings aren't high, to boast about his TV ratings. I don't think that's what the American people want to see in a time of crisis, and I certainly don't think he's helping himself politically that way. 
Now, in terms of the substantive uh, answer to your question, Vice President Biden has been right about this at every step in the way. Uh, Donald Trump says no one saw it coming, except in January, Vice President Biden published an op-ed where he said, hey, this is coming. This is going to be a crisis. This is what we need to do. Uh, uh, President Trump uh, kind of has this whole thing that it's China's fault, except President Trump praised China repeatedly in January and February. The Chinese leadership praised the Chinese leadership repeatedly January and February. Vice President Biden stood up in February and said if he were president, he would insist that American experts be on the ground in China. He would confront the Chinese leadership on this point. He would make sure we knew what was going on. We were getting the data. And on March 12th, Vice President Biden laid out a comprehensive plan for how to fight the virus uh, that is still posted on JoeBiden.com. It's a month and a half old. If President Trump, Vice President Biden that day said, hey, I hope Donald Trump does this. It will help him politically if he does it. I don't care. I'd rather lose the election and save a lot of lives if Donald Trump does the right thing. President Trump, of course, did not do the right thing, didn't follow that plan, didn't follow any plan. As a result, we have the horrible tragedy we're seeing. In terms of reopening the country, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of reopening the country, the vice president laid out a pretty detailed plan in the New York Times a couple weeks ago. We talked about some of the same things I've been talking about today: the need to do more testing before we reopen, the need to get the cases down significantly before we reopen, and the need to make sure also that we protect workers. I mean, it's one thing to say we're going to open these places up. That is the decision governors will make. Are we making sure that workers who are going to go out and deal with people, are the, do they have masks? Do they have gloves where that's appropriate? Are we keeping them spread out? Are we doing things to protect people? And by the way, Terry, that's not just a question for, quote, unquote, when we reopen. There are millions of Americans at their jobs today, right now, bagging groceries, delivering things to our homes, generating electricity. Those people have a right to be as safe as possible. They are doing what we call essential work. They're making the rest of us, making it possible for the rest of us to do what we're doing. And, uh, and, and Vice President's been very strong in the fact that we need to protect people who are at work to the greatest extent we can. And so I think, look, in the end, let me just wrap up the substance and the politics this way. Uh, This crisis we're in uh, creates a very clear differentiation between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It makes very plain how different these two men are, how differently they'd approach something like this, what kind of leadership they have, what kind of empathy they have, what kind of approach to crises they have. And whether Joe Biden is getting as much media attention or not, whether or not people are watching his live streams or not, whether they're seeing the president or not, that clear, strong differentiation is, I think, getting firmer and firmer in people's minds. And I think it's why recent polls show that Vice President Biden's leading a pretty solid margin in most of the key states. Yeah, like Fox News recently released a poll that showed Biden up by nine points or eight points in Michigan, 49 to 41, which is probably why Trump is um, freaking out a bit because he he knows that those are states that he needs, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, and he's losing in all of them. And I think you're right. It's it repeat the more that people see the comparison and contrast contrast between Biden and Trump, just their their. Uh, 
compassion versus lack of compassion, competence versus lack of competence. Um, you know, all of those things, they are polar opposites in every way. And I think the more that the American people see that, and I hope that the former vice president continues to be out there that way, um, I, the more that they realize that Donald Trump is, is an existential threat, not only to our institutions, but literally to America. We literally have a body count now, thanks to his incompetence. It's, it's hard to imagine. Um, before I wrap this up, I just I think some people I have I I, I am a Harvard uh, Institute of Politics fellow for 2020 for the spring. Unfortunately, it's been cut short uh, because of the uh, coronavirus epidemic. But uh, I know that you're a Harvard Law graduate, and I have my students um, wanted to ha- ask me a couple questions to ask you. So I wanted to pick one out to to ask on their behalf. Um, what were what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned? Um, or mistakes that were made that you learned lessons from when you were the Ebola czar and how has that impacted your, um, your, uh, advice, your, the advice you've given to the vice president now, as we, as he tries to put out his plans for coronavirus and, and your outspokenness on it, what were some of the biggest takeaways from your time there? Any lessons learned? Yeah, I think a couple lessons. Uh, the first is that science has to come first. Medical expertise has to come first. I mean, there was never a doubt in the Ebola response. President Obama made that very clear. But when he brought me in uh, to really help make the government work more effectively, to drive the response, to drive the bureaucratic process, it was clear to me that I was there to be a facilitator. I was there to make things happen, but that the strategy came from the medical experts. The medical decisions came from the medical experts. That just happened has to be first. Anything else is flirting with disaster, courting disaster. And so I think that's an important, an important takeaway. You know, I think the second thing, Tara, is that in the end, in responding to an epidemic, you have two choices. You overdo it or you underdo it. What do I mean by that? Well, we had to make a decision in West Africa how many Ebola treatment units to build and where to build them. And we built a lot of them in a lot of places, knowing that by the time they were done and operational, some of those places would have beaten Ebola and we wouldn't need them. Indeed, we had three units we built that never saw a single patient. And people criticized us for that. But the problem was at the time you decided to build them, you didn't know where the disease would be four or six weeks later. And if you waited to see where it was, well, it was too late to start building then. And I think that uh, so, so this is not fighting an epidemic, not something that you can get just exactly right in terms of, uh, you know, just the exact right number of things you need. Um, and so we made a decision to overdo it and to really snuff this epidemic out. I think President Trump consistently has made a decision to underdo it. I think part of the reason we're behind on testing was there was a hope that uh, a new, more technologically advanced test would come along. So why should we order all these old tests? Why don't we just wait for the new one? Then it's taken longer than we thought to get the new one. And, you know, maybe we won't need all these ventilators. Why should we order so many? Maybe we won't need them all. And, you know, that's not the way to fight this. You have to really bring in kind of overwhelming force. It's like, remember in the old days, General Powell, he had his Powell doctrine that you're going to go to war 
You have to use overwhelming force to win a war. That's Fighting right. epidemic is like that. You either underdo it and you wind up in the mess we're in now, or you overdo it and you're you're able to snuff it out. And and that means you you spend money that maybe you don't didn't need to spend, or you put build things you don't need to build. But that's really the only the only two ways to do this. We chose one path in the Obama administration. Today, President Trump's chosen a different path. Could you ever have imagined the lack of coordination with the states, like a national response the way that we see today? Or could you imagine the bush, the, the, the pushback that President Obama would have received if he had attacked governors in the middle of a crisis the way this president has? I'm assuming that when you were dealing with Ebola, there was some type of national coordination with states uh, in place in, that needed to be implemented if, if need be. Yeah, I mean, we, we had cases of Ebola in the U.S. We worked closely with states. Look, I'll be honest. I mean, the states didn't always agree with us. We didn't always agree with them. And that's just part of our system, right? And that's a reality. And so, um, uh, you know, you know, this is a, we, we, we have this federal system. The states have a lot of powers. I think there's two things that were very different, though, with the Ebola response that we're seeing now. The first is President Obama took national responsibility unambiguously. He said, look, we're going to be we're going to take responsibility for getting people the gear they need, getting the equipment we need, standing up testing all over the country, which we did for Ebola, preparing a national national group of Ebola treatment centers, 100 hospitals around the country to treat cases when they came in. We did all these things and we said, yeah, yeah, we're going to own this problem. We're going to take responsibility. Uh, President Trump stands and says, I'm not the national shipping clerk, testing's up to the states, so on and so forth. So that's that's one difference. The second difference is we work with states without regard to the political preference of of the governors. The first case of Ebola we had in the U.S. was in Texas. Rick Perry was the governor of Texas. He was no fan of Barack Obama. Um, uh, he, in fact, uh, you know, had run against him in 2012. Right. And yet I think I think Governor Perry would tell you that he worked by and large. He worked generally very well with the president on the Ebola response. Never a cross public word was uttered between the two of them. I worked very closely with his state public health commissioner directly. Uh, we didn't really care about politics. Uh, this was fighting a disease. And I think this thing where we have President Trump saying basically the governors have to be nice to me or I won't send them stuff or bragging that he sent ventilators to Colorado because the Republican senator asked him for them without mentioning the Democratic governor there. I mean, that kind of politicization of response is just ridiculous and doesn't behoove anyone. Well, you know, it's 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 just hard to imagine sometimes my my friend, George Conway, who is also part of the Lincoln Project. Right. He founded the Lincoln Project. I'm a senior advisor. I've known George a long time. I've known his wife even longer, which I'm not even going to go there with her um, because I'm over her. But uh, George tweeted recently, how many times have I said, did he actually effing say that? Have I said over the last four years? And this is just as we watch Trump respond to this and go after governors and the crazy tweets. I just feel like we can't, it's a constant, like, did he just effing say that again? I I mean, there's just no limits to it. Um, As we end, and thank you again for joining me. You've been so generous with your time. I, it's such a heavy subject that we, I've got to switch it up. We need a little levity, a little something uh, to end this on an up, on an upswing. Uh, Many people may not know that you were, uh, your, your, 
in real life, your character was played by someone very famous, Kevin Spacey, in the movie Recount, because you were involved in a 2000 recount. You worked for Al Gore. What was it like to be played by Kevin Spacey? Did you actually work with him? I mean, obviously, he's had a little fall from grace. But before all that, um, what was it like to work with Kevin Spacey? You know, um, obviously, I think what... uh, Kevin is alleged to have done is horrible and, um, you know, there needs to be an accounting for that. I will say I didn't uh, know about any of that when the movie recount was made. Right. um, I did. I did get a chance to meet him uh, on the set one day and, um, and then, you know, got to know him a little bit afterwards. And, um, you know, I think the thing I, I really appreciate about that movie is it tells the story of a bunch of people, I was one of them, but a lot of other people too, who worked really hard to try to make the electoral system work in Florida and try to set the wrong right. And what I think is interesting about the story is, it ha- from from, the, from our perspective, of course, from the Gore perspective, it has an unhappy ending. And I'll tell you why I like that. I mean, I like that because people need to know that in politics, in law, um, you don't always win. The good guys don't always win. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we have this kind of thing, a lot of, a lot of, the, a lot of political films, a lot of legal films, they, you know, there's a setback. And then by the end, the protagonist wins, justice is done. It all has happy endings. And I tell young people at places like the Kennedy school or the law, Harvard law school or other law schools, that if you want to go into politics, you want to go into public service, you have to be prepared for unhappy endings as much as happy endings. You have to understand that you know the good guys don't always win. It isn't like the movies. And I think that to be able to see that and to be able to understand that and to understand that you still have to press on. You have to press ahead. Uh, you know, you have to try to reform the electoral system after something like the Florida Democrat. You have to try to make it fair for people to vote. That fight is far from over. If anything, in some ways, we're we're moving backwards on some elements of that fight with voter suppression and various things. But the fight goes on, and uh, the fight can go on even if you lose. The fight has to go on even if you lose, and people should be willing to fight hard um, even when you can't get that happy ending. Well, we were on the opposite sides of the of the fence on that issue back in 2000, and that's okay. <laughs> and that is okay. That's, that is good, that's all okay. right. And that's the beauty of of the common denominator of decency and loving this country and freedom to dissent and argue and still be able to have productive conversations without uh, the level of vitriol that's now injected into our politics. Um, and and I think that's great. Um, Last question. Have you been rated yet on the new Twitter account rate my Skype room, uh, rate your Skype room.com, which is a Twitter I, account that rates people's uh, live shots now that everybody's doing their remotes from home. And I haven't, cause I haven't been on air, but, uh, have you been rated yet? It's I'm fascinated. I have with this been site. rated. I'm, 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 I'm actually quite proud. It's, I got an eight out of 10, uh, even though I have kind of sloppy bookshelves, uh, <laughs> Uh, I have a very strong red color in my home office, and I think the, the, the it's a very kind of uh, out of Powerful. normal color. Yeah. You know, it, it's just everyone's got white rooms and white bookshelves. My, yeah. my room is red, and I think I think being willing to be a little risky on the room color got me got me my eight on rate my room. There you go. Rate my Skype room uh, is the Twitter account. It's hysterical. Ron Klein, thank you so much.
much. Um, you've been it's been a, a pleasure. And uh, people can find you at Ronald Klein on Twitter. Also, listen to his podcast. He co-hosts it with Dr. Celine Gounder. It's uh, Epidemic Podcast. Also on Twitter at Epidemic Podcast. Some great information there if you want to dive more into kind of the scientific stuff and with the with facts and figures. And it's it's really really informative. So I encourage people to check out the podcast as well. Best of luck to the Biden campaign. Uh, I've made no secret that I am a supporter of Joe Biden this go around. And I think the world of the Bidens and um, people can go to JoeBiden.com if they want to get involved and help bring some decency back to the White House. Ron Klain, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, thanks so much for having me. Again, another big thank you to Ron Klain for taking time out of his busy schedule to come talk with me about coronavirus and the response. Um, be sure to check out his podcast, Epic Epidemic Podcast, and be on the lookout for his role in the Biden campaign. Well, before I end this week's edition, I always have to have a good news story. And gosh darn it, do we need one in these terrible times? And this, again, is one of those stories that gives me faith in humanity when sometimes I start to lose it a bit. Uh, this guy in in um, in the UK, he was, I guess they have a show over there called Master Chef. So I guess it's kind of like Top Chef over here. His name is Anthony O'Shaughnessy. And he has developed this really sweet bond with his elderly neighbor during this whole coronavirus pandemic, where he started cooking and bringing meals to his elderly neighbor who lives by himself. He's in his 70s. He's lived in the same house for like 40 years. And he even used to help O'Shaughnessy's uh, grandmother when she was alive. Like he used to help with her groceries and help with her garden. Like that's how long this neighbor has been in that in that neighborhood. And he's a widower. So he's lives by himself. And he found out that when the lockdown started in the UK, that he wasn't getting his groceries delivered in full. And I know that this happens to some people, right? If you're using Instacart or whatever, you only get like a part of your grocery list because so many things are out. Well, the same thing is happening over there in the UK. And when he found this out that he was only getting partial groceries, he decided that he would wrap up a a plate of food and bring it over to his neighbor to help him out. Well, that was a month and a half ago. He's been doing this now every day and he makes all these gourmet meals because he's a master chef and he makes all these gourmet meals and he calls up his neighbor to say, hey, you know, this is what I made tonight. And he and his neighbor said, like, he looks forward to this. He's like, this is the highlight of my day talking to O'Shaughnessy and getting his his meals. And he goes and he wraps it up and leaves it on his doorstep and he stands at the front gate. So um, they're socially distanced and they talk for a little bit. And the neighbor takes his food. His name is Pete. Pete takes the food and enjoys it. And um it's they've developed this really great friendship as a result of that. And when he posted this on social media, people started to respond about how they too have been checking in on elderly neighbors and people and bringing them food or going shopping for them where they can and giving example after example. And this one woman said that she started to drop off food for a neighbor who is starting um, with early Alzheimer's and that she used to eat only frozen macaroni and cheese every night. And the reason she knew that was because she was driving her to the store a couple times a week and would see that's what she would buy. So now that the elderly neighbor can't do, they can't really do that. She does all the shopping and the cooking for her. So now she's got 
you know, more healthy meals and taking care of her. And there's like story after story on this guy's Twitter feed about people who are doing these really nice things for elderly neighbors. So I think, you know, with this story, if you want to follow him, his name is Anthony Shock um, on Twitter at Anthony Shock. Um, this is just a lesson, you know, that kindness is can go a long way, especially in times of tragedy. And if you are in a position where you can do that or you can check in on an elderly neighbor or just a neighbor or someone you know who's lonely and help them do that because that's what's going to help get us through this as a nation. You know, we're still, despite the divisions and some of the, the, the seeds of division that are being sowed by this president and his people, to hell with all that, okay? I still think that we are better than this. And, you know, the way people respond in tragedy speaks a lot about our character. So I still think we have national character. And even though the story comes from Britain, I'm sure there are plenty of people in the United States who are doing similarly generous and kind acts. So... Be kind and stay safe, stay healthy, and um, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer. Follow the podcast at uh, honestly underscore Tara and on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Still working on the YouTube channel. Had to wait for some studio things to come in from Amazon. It's taken three weeks to receive, so it's still coming soon. Stay tuned. I'll let you know when we're going to watch it. But um, that's it for this week. See you next week.